0: Today, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and copyright. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. One of the significant controversies about AI is the impact of generative software on the use and production of cultural works. The fast-growing popularity of these tools raises big questions about the ethics of AI-generated works and whether they amount to a technologically advanced form of plagiarism. Now, lawsuits have been popping up around the world as artists, as well as corporate interests, think of Getty Images, for example, claim infringement of their IP rights. Now, I should say that a US federal court ruled back in August that art created by AI without any human input cannot be copyrighted under US law, although what human input means exactly is likely to be debated for some time. Still, we must ask ourselves whether copyright should be the appropriate regulatory tool to determine these questions. In fact, as listeners will hear from our guests today, the novelty of generative AI actually raises a whole lot of questions about the socioeconomic dynamics of cultural production and whether it might not be time to re-examine the role of copyright law in encouraging and incentivizing creativity. That guest is Dr. Karis Craig. And I'm really thrilled that I asked her to come on the show to try to talk through these issues. Dr. Craig is Osgood Hall Law School's Associate Dean of Research, and she's recently stepped into the role of Director of IP Osgood, which is the school's intellectual property law and technology program. She joined the faculty at Osgood Hall in 2002 and is the author of Copyright, Communication and Culture Towards a Relational Theory of Copyright among other writings. And in 2018, she held a McCormick Research Fellowship at the University of Edinburgh. She teaches JD graduate and professional courses in the areas of intellectual property, copyright and trademark law, and legal theory. Dr. Karis Craig, welcome to Modern Law.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: First, um, I, I often ask this of guests who come on, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to where you are today, what brought you into this world of copyright and intellectual property and artificial intelligence?
1: All right. Well, I'm a professor of law at Osgood Hall Law School at York University. And uh, there, I teach in the intellectual property area. So my focus really is on copyright, as well as on trademarks, and then on law and technology and legal theory. Um, I've been at Osgood now for well a couple of decades without <laughs> aging myself um, <laughs> too much. Um, but when I first uh, when I first came, it was in the midst of. Um, the policy panics over the internet and Napster and uh, copyright in that context. So it was a great time to start thinking about copyright law. And um, there was a lot of demand at that point for expertise in the field. And I was fortunately um, a graduate fellow at the University of Toronto at that time. So I did my graduate thesis, my doctoral thesis on copyright policy and copyright theory, and I got uh, hired out of the University of Toronto into the faculty at Osgood in the second year of my PhD, so I've been teaching there ever since.
0: So you landed in this field at a time where there was an extraordinary amount of, I'm guessing, change uh, in the whole media field and in you know, all these platforms and support systems of where we write things.
1: Yeah, exactly that. It was when I first encountered intellectual property law, just as an undergrad LLB student at Edinburgh, Um, there wasn't much focus. It was just a little piece of the commercial law course. And, uh, you know, we moved through it quite quickly. And that was that. And even within a few years, um, this had become an area that was enormously important and where people were beginning to move in and worry about uh, how copyright law was going to adjust to the arrival of internet technologies, how it was going to adjust to the arrival of peer-to-peer file sharing. Um, And fortunately for me that meant that there was quite a lot of investment in um, a new sort of generation of legal scholars who were turning their minds to this question. And so in Ontario, um, there was a large um, push towards um, bringing in graduate students who were working in the field. The Centre for Innovation um, Law at the, um, which was based at the Faculty of Law in Toronto, brought in um, a large group of PhD students and master students, and um, generously funded them. And so I was attracted to Canada and stayed here um, with this graduate scholarship, and then began working in this field, and suddenly um the law schools needed to hire in the area, they needed a whole new generation of IP scholars. And so I think of this really as being, um, you know, one of those cases where I was in the right place at the right time, and uh, suddenly in a field um, that was um, that was generating all of this interest in which there was a lot of movement. And so I do remember at one point, I was also studying sort of feminist theory and international law. And I asked uh, some folks at the University of Toronto if I should maybe redirect to do my graduate work in that area. And I was told in no uncertain terms that if I did intellectual property, I should certainly stay doing intellectual property, that that was what was going to be of interest. And you know, you, you and I were both at a, a conference recently where um, it was said that copyright has not been so interesting since uh, the Napster era. And now suddenly we have another sort of paradigm shift in new technologies with the arrival of generative AI and copyright is cool again.
0: Yes. Uh, and that was the conference held uh, last month at the uh, at the University of Ottawa on uh, responsible AI. I'm just curious, though, like looking back. So if you're looking back at that early period in your career where so much was going on, do you think copyright law has um, adapted to to the circumstances, to those new circumstances of that time? Or did it adapt well is perhaps a different way of putting it?
1: It certainly adapted. I'm not so sure that it adapted well. Um, I think it... Adapted in a way that it invariably does, which is that it expanded in order to cover and capture valuable new activities and typically to protect many of the um, sort of long standing market incumbents in the cultural industries. And so I think what's interesting when I look back at it is that it certainly um, was a time of great disruption, but. The expectation that, that that copyright would somehow be um, be ousted, be so disrupted that it could no longer really continue to operate as it did in the digital age, was was somewhat naive. Um, and I think you know there was a lot of excitement about the new technology. There were certainly new challenges presented, but um, copyright law has been with us for hundreds of years. It has evolved through all kinds of technological changes and advancements, and um, it continues to grow and it continues to um, be strengthened by um, the same kind of impulse for control over cultural content. And so to me, this is part of the way that the the marketplace works It's part of the way that capitalist society works. We can expect that um, copyright will continue to function and to expand as technology changes.
0: I want to hang on this point just a sec because, you know, obviously you've been interested in in the AI copyright challenge for a little while. And actually, I should correct. The conference was Shaping AI for Just Futures at the University of Ottawa last month, organized by the Center for Law, Technology, and Society. But you wrote in a paper recently or, you know, predating that uh, maybe back in 2021, 2022, You called it the unfolding AI copyright drama into which governments, courts, and commentators are increasingly being drawn. We can reasonably predict, talking about AI here, that copyright will once again adapt and prevail. Whether in service of creativity and culture or simply in service of capital, the copyright system is perfectly capable of absorbing this latest innovation and continuing about its business as it has so many times before. I think that's a little bit what you were saying, but, uh, you know, is this true? Is that that true still today, post-chat GPT, for example?
1: So it remains to be seen, obviously. And uh, I know at that conference, there was also some talk about the end of copyright. I found that very interesting because it does suggest that once again, we're imagining that copyright can't cope with technological change. And in some ways, I would like to see copyright recede as the need for it recedes. And so if we have, and we'll speak, I think, a little bit more about the purpose of copyright, but if we have a very vibrant culture in which people can create the costs of expression, the costs of sharing are much less than they were in the pre-digital era, then perhaps we have much Less need for copyright, at least as an incentive for creativity, if that's how we understand its role. And so it's nice to think that as technology, let's say, advances for the moment, um, that at some point, We might not need to have the sort of social costs of copyright and copyright control. We might be able to allow everything to be freely shared in a public domain and everyone to be able to access that and to benefit from it. Um, To my mind, that's a lovely vision of a a future that could be technologically facilitated. Um, I don't imagine <laughs> that we're going to reach that point anytime soon. And I think <laughs> I, we also can rightly predict, I'm sure, that um, that the industries especially that benefit from the exploitation of copyright content are going to continue to enforce a proprietary model that creates owners and therefore creates um, users and audiences and the public that is sort of by default excluded from um, copyright content are subject to copyright control
0: and might i suggest too that you know maybe not just the, the the corporate owners but you know perhaps the the authors themselves or the songwriters themselves uh the artists themselves might feel a little bit nervous about your proposition <laughs>
1: Indeed. And you you can suggest it. And there's a reason, however, why I'm talking about corporate owners and industries. And that's because I hesitate to um, lump creators and authors and artists and performers in with the um, content industries and corporate owners who tend to reap the benefits of copyright control. And so I think what we have today is a system of copyright that benefits um, a very limited uh, group of people or persons or corporations and tends not to really benefit the artists and creators and authors that we think of when we talk about copyright policy. Often I find in copyright policy debates, the artist, the creator is held up as sort of a romantic trope something or someone that we venerate that we want to reward and that has therefore this important sort of cultural significance in our society um, but often that person or that trope is held up as really a stalking horse for corporate interests right that basically um, What you see is that, and this has been the case from the very inception of copyright, that the author is held up as the, as the would be beneficiary of a system where actually all that copyright does is create this sort of proprietary right over the, the work over the original expression and then just send it out into the marketplace um, as something that can be commoditized and controlled. And so usually the author or the creator or the performer drops very quickly out of that picture. They have to assign their rights to the publisher. They lose control over their work and, um, and rarely for its full sort of social or market value. Right. And so often the very people who talk about the need to reward creators, the need to protect artists and ensure their livelihoods are, you know, the intermediaries who, in fact, are reaping the benefits of the copyright system and leaving those authors and artists with very little in return.
0: Like artists putting their stuff up on Spotify, for example, or, uh, you know, not to point any fingers at any uh, one platform in particular, but you know, they don't, they, don't, they don't reap all that much unless they have absolutely massive audiences.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And we see this in every different kind of cultural industry. And so people have the same experience um, in the music industry or if they're authors assigning rights um, to book publishers. Um, often the author or the artist is, as I say, not the main beneficiary of the profit that comes in um, as a result of their work. Um but gets a tiny fraction of that.
0: It, it might be a good time here just to rewind a little bit and and talk a little bit. what is you know what what originally is the purpose of copyright? Uh, and how should we think of its purpose um, in, the bro- in the in the broader context of you know the creation of works in AI, okay, because copyright's been around for 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 a very long time now. And so it had an original purpose. And I'm just wondering at this point if, um, if that purpose is still true to itself.
1: Right. Um, yeah, well, we can, I mean, we can take this all the way back <laughs> to the 15 and 1600s, if you want. Um, the purpose of copyright was, or the equivalent there, was control over the printing presses. And it was really sensorial at that point. It was a way to control the flow of information. Um through publication at the time when even being able to print words and share them with a the literate public was a very new thing, right? So that's the first sort of technological innovation that started this whole thing off was the printing press. Um, when it came to the first copyright statute, so now we're in the early 1700s, um, the purpose of the Statute of Anne was stated to be the encouragement of learning. And so, you know, one way to understand that is the idea that it was aimed at um, increasing or growing a literate public, sharing books, allowing the printing of books and the selling of books and access to books um, for the encouragement of learning. And so I would say that's the original function. Um, there's a lot of wonderful historical work though on whether that was actually true and um, suggestions, for example, that it was really a trade regulation device to try to break up the stationers who were the publishers of the time. Um and then it continued to evolve, right? So you have statements like the in the US Constitution, the purpose of copyright is to advance progress of science and the useful arts by granting to authors a limited right. Um, meanwhile, in continental Europe, they would say, well, the purpose of copyright is first and foremost. Um, to uh, protect the the droit d'auteur, right, to recognise the rights of the author and understand that the author has some sort of natural entitlement to their work. And that comes first. Um, Fast forward to now and to Canada, we have kind of an amalgam of all of these reasons in the mix. We tend to talk about, and the Supreme Court of Canada has explained that the purpose of copyright is to achieve a balance between rewarding creators and encouraging the creation and the dissemination of works of the arts and intellect. So, what I like to do with that is put it all in context and say the purpose of copyright should be to function as a cultural policy tool that helps to encourage authorship, creativity, and the dissemination of works.
0: What do most people who are not in your field of study, uh, what is it that they don't get about copyright that you think that they should understand about it?
1: To my mind, the thing that people most readily misconstrue about the copyright system is the nature of the copyright people tend to think of it as a property right they tend to think of it as an ownership right um, that functions like any other kind of claim of ownership and so that tends to look first of all to my mind far too absolute right like you can control this thing that is the work And you can own it and you can exclude other people from it and you can dictate how it's used. And then if somebody uses it without um, the permission of the owner, that's misappropriation or that is theft. and That's stealing, right? And often, you know, stealing of ideas. Um, And this is not how copyright works for a start. Um, You don't own the whole work as a thing. You can't control the ideas that are within it. Um, But also, it's not a property right in this sense. If someone uses the work, takes it, copies it, they're not depriving the owner of anything. The owner still has the work as well. Everybody can have the work at the same time. Everybody can sing the same song at the same time. It's not a rivalrous possession, right? And so if we get rid of the property metaphor or don't begin at least with this sort of analogy between the the intangible work and a physical thing that is owned. I just think we start off with them in a much better place to actually create cultural policy, right? Recognizing that what we're really dealing with is um, an original work of expression. What we're really dealing with is not a thing, but it's speech, right? It's it's communication. It's 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 got meaning (laughs) and so if we think about it as something that regulates speech and information rather than it creates property rights over works as things um then we're going to have i think a much more productive conversation about what copyright policy should achieve
0: so this gets i think at at a at an important question about the incentive system uh you know, and so how how the, our laws now as they are today are current are are actually designed versus, you know, uh how it might look from to someone who, you know, just walks into the room from the outside or someone who, who from Mars and is looking at, you know, how our copyright system incentivizes people to create. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, how do you measure um the disconnect between those two, between those two things?
1: There is, there is a significant disconnect between the way that copyright actually works and um, the, the incentive story that we tell ourselves about copyright's purpose and, and what it does. Um, so the incentive story is, um, you know, in the sort of just law and economics framing to say, you know, The act of expression of creating a work, never mind publishing a work, um, comes with costs, right? It's an investment of time, it's often an investment of money and energy. Those costs and that effort could be expended elsewhere. And so, if we assume that we're all sort of rational economic actors, why would anyone invest their time and energy and these costs in creating something if? They cannot expect to recoup those costs in any way through the market. And so as soon as they share the work, the work can be copied by everybody um, for free. Then they're not going to get any economic benefits flowing back to them. So they won't invest in the first place and will all be worse off, right? Because there will be fewer people actually investing in creating works. And so to the extent that we want to encourage this kind of creativity Um, to encourage people to to write, to compose, Um, we need to make it possible for them to recoup their investment. And so what we do with the copyright system is we create that right that allows control in the marketplace, which allows at least um, theoretically or notionally um, for that that work to be exchanged in the market for value.
0: So now there are... are Technologies that are complete game changers in in our economy, and you know, I'm interested that you know you came into this back in the days of Napster because Napster was was a game changer in terms of the distribution of uh, these creative works, for example. And now today we are facing a new game changing technology which is obviously artificial intelligence and maybe more specifically what we've seen with creative with a, with generative ai because here we're not just talking about the distribution as i can see we're actually talking about the creation so this is a, a, a this technology is actually changing the creation itself of the artwork and i'm just wondering you know how do we digest that to start even beginning to think about how copyright should play a role in building the legal framework around artificial intelligence
1: yeah i i do agree with you i think that this that the arrival of generative ai is is a game changer it is a paradigm shifting moment probably just in our culture at large and in our copyright policy <laughs> more specifically um for my interests and so Thinking about how it's going to play out and the difference that it makes in the model and uh, the copyright system's um, methodology for creating value or protecting value, um, clearly we're going to have a lot of thinking to do (laughs) about how the law should respond uh, to the arrival of this new technology. Um, But also... in the sense that this is really going to shift cultural practice and social practice. And so the law is often playing and sort of catch up with these realities anyway. And so I think we also have a, a larger question about whether the law should try to respond um, to this technology. And if so, not just how, but, but when. And, you know, one of the things that we saw early on with the arrival of the internet was um what I think of as being really a kind of premature mobilising to establish the rules of the game for the internet era. Um, And, of course, the the parties that were around the table at that time were the sort of um, dominant cultural industries of the time. And ultimately, the risk is if you, you engage in that kind of lawmaking, Um, and are are responsive to the pleas of lobbyists who are concerned about the arrival of new technology, then you risk sort of stultifying the development of that new technology and you risk reinforcing uh, the current status quo, making sure the same people stay around the table, that the rules of the game for the new technological landscape are the rules that they want to play by that will benefit them. And so... I am just in general reluctant to assume that the law should necessarily step in and try to keep up with technological change immediately. And certainly, I'm very nervous about the idea that you should do that in response to the pleas of people who who might um, otherwise lose out um, in the new sort of market that's created by the new technology. So um, I think that means (laughs) that in this context, um, you know, if we boil it right back down to what I was saying before about the cost of expression and investment in creativity and, um, and publishing works, what we've seen, and this is, you know, with the arrival of the internet all the way up to the arrival of generative AI, what we've seen is that the kinds of things that used to be very costly and involve significant investment of, of time and resources um, in creating works, in publishing works, in sharing works, in finding audiences, in distribution and dissemination. Those costs have you know, <laughs> almost dissipated. Like they, they are radically declined in a world where you don't need um intermediaries to reach an audience in a world where you can create um, virtually you know for free things that are professional quality things that huge audiences want to access and so we have a completely different landscape for um, for for creativity whether it's authorship whether it's photography whether it is visual arts whether it is making music whether like completely different cultural landscape than we had twenty or twenty-five years ago,
0: and there's also a completely different. It's a completely different landscape too. I think in the in in um, in the process of creation, and so this is perhaps a good time to draw the distinction between input versus output. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand that because uh, these are. We, we, I I think we think of copyright and artificial intelligence in terms of those two frameworks as a starting point?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So I want to, I mean, if you don't mind, what I might do is start with outputs, which <laughs> because it avoids some of the the sort of technical and doctrinal um, messiness of applying current copyright law um, at the input side. We'll get to that. But I think when we're just talking about sort of the cultural environment that we're in and the way that it's changed with the arrival of generative AI, it's worth starting off by just thinking about the the outputs, thinking about what AI is capable of generating and what that means. And so here I just, you know, I I think we're at a time now where there's a little bit of a, a backlash against this technology. Obviously, there's a lot of Um, Concern about um, the way it's going to develop and what it's going to do um, to, especially to, I think, our cultural sector, or not especially, to every sector of society, but that's uh, the one we're focused on here. Um, And so I think it's worth recognising that these are extraordinary tools (laughs) um, that can produce this... um, you know, the, these amazing outputs that we have to recognize as being a significant contribution, I think, to, to our culture. Um, and there are lots of, of course, artists and others who are working with these tools in a sort of assistive capacity, thinking about what it means for these new technologies to be at our disposal for the creation of new cultural artifacts, new ways of meaning making. Um, I think it's very real to say that they're democratising meaning-making in important ways as well. So, you know, you don't have to be a great artist to be able to create a great work of art if you're using mid-journey. Um, you don't have to be, um, you know, a trained musician to be able to create a decent-sounding track. Um, and so there's, there's this capacity to create at a scale that I don't think we've we've really encountered before. And one way to look at that, just to return to this cost of expression point, is that the cost of expression, again, have gone way down when it comes to using these tools, which are available now to all of us for very little or nothing, um, to be able to use them in this creative capacity um, is, is pretty exciting. Um, so I can imagine when people are talking about, you know, the end of copyright in this context, they might just mean we don't need to be um, encouraging and rewarding creators anymore because everybody's a creator. If they've got an AI tool and an idea, or they're capable of writing a prompt um, and so and they can do it for virtually nothing. And so that's, I think, one way in which we should recognize that if the purpose of copyright is encouraging this kind of um, exercise of, of creating meaning, then there's something exciting about generative AI.
0: But how do the sort of entrenched artists, uh, let's call them the incumbents, so to speak, and I'm not talking here about the corporate interest, I'm talking more about you know the, the people who have spent years, maybe even decades, uh, honing their uh, their artistic talent and their artistic expression. Suddenly they're faced with this. Surely there will be those who uh, will rise to the challenge of, of adopting this kind of technology in their craft. Others will understandably be very concerned, very worried about this, let's call it democratization of creative expression. Do we need to think about their interests when considering the legal framework at play here?
1: Certainly, absolutely. We have to think about their interests because they are, um, as I've suggested, sort of central to copyright policy, even if they have typically not been the beneficiaries of copyright in practice. Um, I completely understand that there's gonna be a lot of anxiety around um, the way that these new tools might actors or substitutes, if you will, for human creativity or works of human authorship um, in the cultural sphere. And to some extent, I think that's real, right? Like if, you know, if you can save the cost of hiring a graphic artist because you can use Midjourney and produce an image, then... Um, then you probably will, right? Depending um, on who you are and how much money you have to spend and what it is you need. Um, So there's definitely going to be a shift. And I don't mean to underplay that at all. Um, What I would say, though, and and what I do say is that I think even if facially we're seeing things um, generated by AI that look like they could have been authored by a human um, or created by a human author... These two things are not the same. They are performing a different role in our culture, that they are going to be recognized as signifying or meaning something different. I don't think that we're going to see um, sort of a disappearance of a desire to have a human author or a human creator or to marvel over what it is that artists and performers and creators and songwriters can do. I think really our desire for these cultural um, works or texts is... Uh, the meaning, their signification, what they tell us about the person who's trying to communicate to us through them, and I don't mean to sort of romanticize this. I just I, I think that that's sort of the nature of culture. That's the, that's the value of creativity is in this sort of social dialogue, okay? and that is what we should be um, trying to encourage um, in our system. And I think that um, that people will continue to want. Um, human authored works. And so I think one of the solutions that we might want to turn our mind to at some point here with regard to outputs is something that's more, is more in the line of the sort of trademark work I do, which is about um, information for consumers and for audiences so that people are not being misled about what it is that they're getting. So if, if consumers, if audiences, if citizens know what it is that they want and they know that they want something that isn't created or generated by a machine, then they shouldn't be misled into um, paying for or acquiring or, or searching out the wrong thing, right? So we could. We
0: could- so you're telling me I'm not I'm not going to be I'm not going to be able to sell my my journey uh, works of art that I've created.
1: <laughs> well, I don't think anyone because why would they pay for them from you if they could just like make their own? <laughs> Right. So I don't think there's actually that much value there in what's being generated in that economic sense. I think the value will still be in the in the human authored work.
0: There is no value. And then I think I told you this last time, but every time I, I play on Midjourney, it always looks like it, it comes out of uh, Frodo the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings or something like that. <laughs> right. I don't know if it's my prompting. And I, I mean, I'm not even a big fan of those. Uh, those <laughs> well, that's
1: what you tell us. But
0: <laughs> I do want to I do want to flip it to the other side, though, for a second, because you know there is there is the input side that's going in, and this is obviously an area that is upsetting creators. We've we've seen you know all these lawsuits and you know class actions, uh, you know, by the day that are being litigated, mostly in the United States, on uh, the use of content going into. These creative AI tools.
1: Yeah. And so this is, I mean, I, I think often when we talk about these things or when there, it's being talked about in the media, we see uh, a convergence of, of these two things or confusion between the, the inputs and the outputs. And so a lack of clarity over what the legal questions are. And, you know, there's definitely uh, an appropriate lack of clarity over what the answers are, but <laughs> the questions um, are actually quite. Clear And so I think we can and should separate these things out. We were talking before about the outputs. And I just maybe need to wrap up the thought there by saying, um, my argument is that the outputs of um, artificial intelligence ought not to be protected by copyright at all. Um, that they're not works of human authorship, and um, that copyright is there um, for and to encourage works of human authorship. And therefore, to the extent that a work is simply generated um, by a machine, no copyright attaches. Um, and so it belongs in the public domain. And I think even in that sort of policy decision, there are important implications for um, for ensuring that, for example, creative employees remain employed. Like you don't, you know, the Hollywood studios are going to want to keep their human script writers to hand if they're going to want to have copyright <laughs> in their movies and their scripts. And so I think there's there's, an important reason to limit the benefits of copyright um, to uh, to human authors and their assignees, and so um, that's the output side of things.
0: And, and presumably, there would be there would be a point where the human authors can be assisted by some of these creative AI tools. Somehow, we're going to have to figure out where the line is drawn between this was produced by a machine in output as opposed and but when does it become human
1: yeah no the the line drawing exercise is not going to be an easy one here especially (laughs) (laughs) especially as ai technology has become sort of more and more embedded in the platforms that we typically use in our own sort of creative um activities and so there will have to be some parsing or or just a a clear line drawing exercise to, to decide when is something AI generated and when or at what point do we recognize, I'm going to say, the user of the artificial intelligence tool as an author. I actually think that the answer is already clear in the law. Like If the user of the AI tool is engaged in a process that Um, involves skill and judgment, um, especially when you see the kinds of iterative um, creative processes where someone is working with the AI, adding prompts, choosing between different options that they're given, selecting things to continue to tinker with and play with with new prompts. All of that looks like something that we would typically recognize as being creativity anyway. And so I think that there's quite a lot of scope for recognizing um, authorship and allowing copyright in something that is um, or, or created making some use of AI technologies. There's still a debate about this because the lack of predictability and the lack of control that a user has over the AI means there's still a kind of gap between their expressive sort of intent and the way the work Ends up looking right, and so, or, or so, there's still you know, there's still a debate there about how much control they need to have over the output to be able to say that their role was one of authorship and not just the user of a, a technological tool. Um, so it's not, it's yeah. not, it's
0: not quite Picasso stealing from <laughs> Matisse, uh, because at least Picasso had some control over what he was doing with his paintbrush. Right. Uh, He wasn't, you know, he was doing more than just drawing inspiration from what someone else had done before.
1: That's right. I mean, there's always like the idea of inspiration and using pre-existing text to create new text. This human authorship has always used... Um, other pre-existing inputs to create new things by by recombining them in new ways, by selecting or arranging them differently. And we've always recognised this as being authorship, even if it's not creation de novo out of nothing. Like it's it's working with the materials that are there. And so we have to continue to recognise that rather than, you know, having this sort of romantic trope idea of authorship as being creating out of nothing, Um, That really, this recombination of working with pre-existing materials is always an essential part of authorship. And so if the AI user is engaged in that and is using what the AI gives them in this kind of expressive process, at, at some point, they're going to be doing everything that we need them to do. To be considered an original author for the purposes of copyright, that's already a very low threshold, um, by the way, and so I don't think we'll have trouble with that. The thing that I said, and I think this was at the really at the outset of our conversation about how we the the work for copyright purposes is not just you know a piece of property that's owned in its entirety, but rather the the work that's subject to copyright contains. Um, copyrightable elements and public domain elements within it. So just because you have copyright in a work doesn't mean you own everything within, you know, between the front and the back cover of the book, right? And you don't own the ideas. You don't own the information or the data. You don't own non-original elements. You don't own things that were copied from elsewhere. You don't own things that are sort of stock or common features in, you know, in our culture. and so. Really, the same will just be true here, right You can own copyright in a work that you created using an AI tool, but you can't claim to own the pieces of that expression that were beyond your authorial control that were created by the machine and not through your own skill and judgment
0: It's often said that our our you know our laws uh, privacy laws, but also our copyright laws should be technologically. Neutral. I think this is a way of saying new technology comes to the fore. The law has to be designed in such a way as to be able to adapt to it. Unless, am I wrong, or do you have a different definition of what is technologically neutral? And I guess the larger question is, is the law technologically neutral still with artificial intelligence in mind?
1: The whole concept of technological neutrality is um, a bit of a head-scratcher anyway. i just trying to think about what that means because of course technology is not neutral. And of course, the law is not neutral. <laughs> so when you try to write laws about technology, it's not going to be neutral. Um, and so <laughs> we need to take that off the table to begin with. Um, so we're not really talking about neutrality in the sense that you know there's a sort of technology blindness, um, a pure objectivity, um, which you know closes its eyes to um, technological affordances or um, that sort of transcends our technological realities. Like that's it's a fiction, um, but as a principle, um, a sort of a principle of lawmaking or a principle of policy, I think there is a role for technological neutrality properly understood. And what so, is,
0: what is it properly understood? Then,
1: <laughs> fair question. Um, I
0: got a feeling I butchered.
1: <laughs> no, no, I think I think you did quite well. So it's um, so what I can. It, it's easiest to say what it's not, right? Like it's not just that we are technology blind. Right, that we, you know, that that's not going to achieve the kind of neutrality that I want. What I'm asking for um, is something more like that. The, we're technology um, mindful is one way to put it, um, but also that it's that our norms, that the 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 um, the goals of our law should remain sort of consistent as technology changes. And so, really, it's a kind of normative neutrality, right? Like, if the goal of copyright is to encourage um, the creation and dissemination of works, then we should remember that that's our goal as technology changes. And what we should be doing in the law is trying to um, adjust the sort of equilibrium or the balance that we're striking to make sure that the law continues to function as we want it to function and um, continues to advance the objectives or meet the sort of social values that we, that we mean it to, or that we did before this new te- technological like paradigm shifting moment. And so I think what that means is that the, we cannot just blindly say, you know, copying is wrong and co- Copyright always prohibited unauthorized copying. And so it doesn't matter how technology changes, every copy that's unauthorized is a copyright infringement. Like that would be a sort of technology-blind approach, which is sort of a, a, a formalistic way of understanding like technological neutrality. Um, and so if every copy is infringing, then you know, even if you're browsing online, you're making digital copies in the random access memory of your computer, if you're caching copies for internet servers, like, you're, like all of those things are copies. And if all of those copies count, then we can't do anything with this new technology because right? the law is rigid and doesn't recognize the way that technology has changed how we interact with um, or around these uh, cultural content. Um, and so... I'm trying to argue for a vision of technological neutrality that's more like sort of substantive equality, right? What we're trying to achieve—a balance—we recognise that it has to be understood in context, and we're trying to maintain sort of stability for the law and its objectives as technologies are shifting. Um, if that, Because I'm aware the other question, I keep doing this to you, that I left hanging before was on the inputs. <laughs> so, so I think I can uh, – let me try and bring could these be two my things together. my interruptions, but yes. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure it's my fault. Um, so let me see this. I'll try and bring it together. In my opinion, we can't just treat every single copy as though it's a copy. Uh, which, and, and therefore, if it's not authorized, it's infringing that's not going to make any sense in the digital era. It doesn't make any sense um, just for the internet, never mind when we're talking about training artificial intelligence. Um, My suggestion is then that we begin our analysis um, taking a sort of more substantive approach to neutrality and saying, like, what are the purposes of the copyright system and how is artificial intelligence like disrupting that? What do we need to do in our copyright system to continue to advance its objectives given this new technological reality? Um, I think that we need to look at the training of artificial intelligence as something that is equivalent to what we would always have allowed in our copyright system um, In other contexts. So the extraction of data and information. I've said already, there is no ownership of information contained in copyright works. You've always been free to read a work, to take out the ideas, to take out the information, to use those, to recombine them, to create something else. And so my suggestion is that rather than focusing on the sort of Technological processes. There must have been a copy made of a work in a database somewhere in order for the AI to be trained upon it. Instead, we look at how is the technology functioning and what is it doing, what is its effect. And I'm saying it's the the copies that are um, that are made in the process of training an AI are not copies that reach an audience. The texts that are used to train AI are not being read in the same way by the machine as they would be read by a human. Um, They're not being understood or used or enjoyed for their meaning or what they communicate in any way at all. They are really just a source of data and that data is being extracted it's being turned into tokens as I understand it that then allow the machine to without ever going back to that original copy discerning patterns, correlations, probabilities, and therefore predicting how text will or could look. Uh, and that's essentially what the AI is doing. And so I feel that in this context, an obsession with the copies that go in to the AI and the fact that those um, there may be uh, reproductions being made of works for training purposes, Um, shouldn't lead us to say that all of the training process is unlawful or a copyright infringement just because the owners of the copyright in all of those texts and all of that um, information were not um, given a chance to authorize the inclusion of their works in the system.
0: And I'm I'm guessing there will be people... Uh, trying to convince policymakers and governments to continue to protect uh, their interests in that regard. And, and so there's another line I've heard you talk about or use, which is interesting where you talk about, yeah, we consider again the pressure that's placed on policymakers to address this new brave new world of cultural production. Um, And obviously with AI technology being at the forefront of that. And you're warning them presumably those who who seek again uh, this protection against running into what you call the copyright trap what, what do you mean by that so
1: I am concerned that in this sort of, in this rush to respond to the arrival of generative AI and in the context of it's almost really a sort of moral panic about what this technology can do and how it's going to affect society and affect our creators and our cultural um, our cultural landscape um, that we're going to to rush into a regulatory response that sort of deploys copyright as uh, as an easy kind of pre-existing fix. <laughs> and so I think there has been, um, at each stage of technological development, as we've discussed, a sense that um, copyright is the appropriate tool, the thing that is going to um, allow us to respond to the new technology, that is going to support creators, that is going to um, ensure the... Continuation of cultural production, and um, in the new technological environment, or sometimes,
0: or so, sometimes, inappropriately police expression in, in ways that they shouldn't be, or
1: yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. So um, there's, uh, you know, from the beginning, I said you know, copyright was originally this sort of sensorial tool, right? It was originally a tool of censorship, and um, it really does, and it really must be recognized um, as something that controls speech and controls access to information and the flow of information. And you know this is where the property model I think leads us astray because when we think about copyright subject matter as speech, um, we can already see that we shouldn't be limiting speech and the flow of information or access to information and the exchange of ideas unless there's a really good reason to do that, right? And even then, it has to be something that you can justify, right? So this is now, I mean, in the charter language, you talk about it, you know, it's something that can be um, justified in a free and democratic society. Um, it needs to be a legitimate limitation on expression. And so the copyright trap, I think, is, is the conviction um, that copyright should regulate all aspects of our cultural landscape that copyright is the legal tool of choice um to control the way that um expression is shared and that has been in part um just because let me put it this way um, when the internet arrived, <laughs> we didn't need, there was some debate, as I mentioned before, about whether a copyright could survive, but there was also some debate about whether copyright could actually regulate the internet, right? Whether we, we just have to say, okay, there, there, you can't control this anymore, right? There was a time when you could control the printed word, but in the internet age, we can't control the way that words are shared or reproduced or disseminated anymore, Um, And at that time, Jessica Lippman wrote um, a book about digital copyright, where she said, you know, this is the hubris of copyright lawyers, that we think that copyright should set the rules of the game for the internet. Right. That <laughs> the, the, we have such a perfect system that works so well that what we should do is impose that upon this whole new sort of technological um, environment where people could otherwise be free to engage and share everything and anything. But no, 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 we're going to impose our sort of jurisdictionally specific copyright system on the whole world and, you know, not just the world, but the whole world wide web. Right. And we did, (laughs) that's exactly what we did. Um, And so my concern is that with each new sort of evolution, something that could be sort of freed from this kind of control and this kind of model, um, we rush to copyright to sort of reinstate it, to make sure that it stays as the appropriate rule. Um, of the game. And the truth is that as the way that technology is evolving, many of the sort of core assumptions of copyright just simply don't fit, or they don't fit very well. And that copyright wasn't, you know, already wasn't working very well. And so the idea that now it's going to solve our problems just strikes me as a mistake. So I've spoken a little bit about the sort of fixation on copies and how that's a sort of a hangover from an analog era where it was really hard to, to copy things (laughs) and copies circulated as physical copies rather than as digital copies. So I think that's one element of this. Um, The other is that we tend in the copyright model to assume that if something is valuable, copyright should attach to it. Right? So, um, so that means that we assume if someone's extracting value or getting value from something that they should have to ask for permission for that thing. And if someone's producing something of value, then they should be able to own that thing. And I think we need to kind of escape from this, um, this notion that everything that has social or cultural or economic value must be privately owned. Right. That, to me, is an element of the copyright trap.
0: There, there's another... I think related point, which I, I I read you on, which I thought was interesting. Um, I got, I think I got the passage here. I'll quote it: uh, "The quality and scope of a data set has a direct bearing on the quality and operation of the resulting AI. In short, we must be alert to the risk that copyright law unduly restricts, distorts, and or otherwise determines the trajectory." of AI's technological development and operation. I thought that was really interesting because is that saying that, you know, if we frame the law in too rigid of terms that we risk uh, directing the evolution of the technology itself?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we clamp down now on the training of AI and insist that, Um, using copyright protected works to train AI without permission is infringement and is therefore unlawful, then we will absolutely be allowing copyright law to change the way that the technology develops and not, I think, in ways that we ultimately want to. And so if you imagine that we're talking about, I think there's a, a tendency to still think about individual works and lots and lots and lots of individual works, right? But the, you, you have a database, so you can just list all the individual works that are there. Um, and this, the reality now is really that the vast quantity of data that is being used to train all of the, I mean, we're talking about billions um, in some cases of different texts that are being used and that are being scraped from, the internet to allow for the training of these systems. So it's not, it, it, you know, there are smaller systems and smaller data sets when you can say like, no, there are these these books were included or these particular works were included. But the reality is, it's not just about particular works. It's vast amounts of text <laughs> and images from everywhere. And so, copyright uh, imagines a particular text, a particular work that has a particular copyright owner. We only know who the owner is because we know who the author is. We have to know if the author is alive or dead, and if they're dead, when they died, and did they die over 70 years ago? And if not, who inherited their estate, and who therefore has the capacity to grant copyright control? So anyone that's engaged in um, clearing copyright knows that this is an incredibly time-consuming Sometimes it's incredibly time consuming for a single work or just compiling a sort of small group of works. The idea that you could identify the author and the copyright owner um, of every work that is included, every piece of text or data or image that is included in any training data set in the billions and clear those rights is just completely invisible. that, That just can't happen. And so you know, there are lots of people now who are thinking, okay, but still, right, still, we could find a system that says, you know, in theory, at least everybody deserves that power of control, but recognizing that we can't really operationalize that they still deserve some sort of reimbursement for their work, right? I think that's where we're at. That's where the the European conversation is going, certainly. And I can see why that's tempting, especially when people feel like their livelihoods, might be threatened as creatives. The idea that there should be some reimbursement for the value that's being extracted um, from the work um, is is an attractive one. But this is where I turn to the question of what, how. First of all, how <laughs> can that be managed? Who's really going to benefit?
0: Yeah, I mean th- that seems that seems that seems almost impossible
1: to me. It seems impossible. It just it, it actually seems not almost impossible, but actually impossible. Not for everybody, I think there will be, but it it will significantly limit what goes into the data sets. And it will significantly limit who, which interests have the capacity to build those lawful data sets, right? So either it's going to produce a system where there's a lack of transparency and accountability because um, AI creators can't admit or can't point to what they've used and therefore there's a sort of underground unlawful AI um, and and you're gonna have um, you know the biggest most powerful players with the best lawyers who are going to be able to buy the best data sets and they're gonna they're gonna emerge as the clear front runners in what will therefore be um, a sort of landscape dominated by one or two big players. With lots of so, so instead
0: of so instead of democratizing uh, we would in, end up creating an elite of owners over creative content, and I guess some sort of dark web of something else going on. You know, dark web of creators, which could be kind of fun, maybe. But-
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's intriguing, but yeah, no, exactly that, right? Like it, I think that, and so when I say that this could change the trajectory of the technological. Um evolution. I, I think I mean this exactly, right? You're gonna you're distorting the development of the technology to protect um existing rights holders. And we're talking often in this debate about you know the creators and the artists, but it's not the creators and the artists, it's the rights holders <laughs> that are going to be able to ask for that reimbursement. Um, plus if you think about in the millions, like we talked about how the works that are generated probably have not that much economic value in their own right. Um, meanwhile, how do you divide that value between the billions of rights holders <laughs> whose rights may have gone into the training of the thing? And so it's, it's not put this way. If, you know, if artists and creators are, are struggling right now economically, this 0.000000 <laughs> payment that might come because it's attributed to the value of their work in a giant data set is not going to be the thing um, that, that ensures that their livelihoods um, you know, are protected in the age of AI.
0: It's something just dawned on me, though, but it, and it's interesting, you know, we talk about, again, these inputs. And then the outputs that come out of it. And it's funny because we have all these conversations too. I mean, there have been these very, very sort of almost, at times controversial, but also spirited conversations about cultural appropriation, for example. And, you know, relying on cultural appropriation to produce creative works of art. Um, How does that fit in? Like, how, how does culturally created works uh how do they get input into a creative generator and come out on the other end and is this a debate that we need to have is this a debate about cultural diversity that we need to have
1: i think that the risk here is that we When we start talking about cultural appropriation and the extraction of value, um, while there's a real concern about fairness and inclusion, I think once we start using a proprietary rhetoric to talk about what's happening here, um, we again risk missing the bigger picture. Right. Actually, like if we use the, the property model, we're thinking about exclusion. Like the property owner can exclude others, can say, no, you can't access this. You can't use this. For me, from a cultural perspective, the bigger concern is inclusion. Right. We want to kind of flip this and start thinking about inclusivity. Who gets to be in? And the risk for me of relying upon copyright or falling into the copyright trap when we're thinking about how to regulate AI, is that what we're actually doing is creating sort of um, walled gardens. What we're actually doing is excluding um, people whose works and whose expressions are not going to be part of the data set. They want to, if they want to opt out or they're just never included, you're going to end up with AI tools that exacerbate um, knowledge disparities and that create further social and cultural exclusions. Um, So actually, the best place to start thinking about this is with a piece that was written several years ago now that was really quite prescient by Amanda Lewandowski, where she argued about the sort of the bias problem that copyright was going to exacerbate in AI, that if people are trying to train AI not using copyright-protected works, that they're going to end up training AI on um, a very a sort of limited data set that's going to exclude lots of modern content, lots of content for which rights can't be cleared, in a way that makes the tools... Um, less well-trained and much more problematic, right? They're going to be trained on texts that we know would belong in the public domain because they were published in the 1900s, then there go all the women, right? Like they're to, so you have, to, you have to worry that what you actually do when you rely upon copyright is that you create new exclusions. And if artificial intelligence is going to be as important as we think it's going to be in terms of sort of resetting the, um, A cultural conversation, then everybody whose worldview, everybody whose expressions and whose cultural um, meanings don't appear in the data sets, they're also going to be excluded from the outputs, right? They're also going to be excluded from um, what the AI is generating, and that's not going to hold back the main sort of developers of these AI tools, but it is going to distort our culture further and create, I think, even more in the way of sort of knowledge and cultural hierarchies and marginalise people. Um, AI has a way, just by virtue of how it works as a prediction tool or a probability tool, really it has a way of producing the most probable thing. And so what it creates is really something that reflects Our dominant culture. Um, It's not producing or generating things that are objective. It is producing things based upon the cultural content that it is fed. And so, the more limited that is, I think the more problems we have with bias and inequality in the outputs.
0: I think that's a perfect place to end the interview and a good place to get us thinking about next steps on, you know, where perhaps copyright law should go. I know at the beginning you said it would probably not be completely upended, the law itself, but perhaps AI does present an opportunity to revisit the purpose of of our copyright system.
1: I think if we can redirect copyright to worrying about human authors and creators and a vibrant participatory culture, and then that will lead to both a better cultural environment for all of us and a better copyright system.
0: Karis Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, That was a fascinating conversation.
1: Thank you for having me.